minutes a day, 365 days a year. This is the Pack a Day Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode 635 of the Pack a Day Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Herman. I am a writer and editor for Packer Reports. You can always follow me on Twitter at Andy Herman NFL. My guest today needs no introduction, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, He will be working with NFL Network for this week's NFL draft coverage. He is a Packers film expert for The Athletic, a producer over at ESPN College Football. Uh, Most importantly, he's one of our absolute favorite guests here on the podcast. My guest today is the one and only Ben Fennell. Ben, welcome back to the podcast and welcome officially to NFL Draft Week. Yeah, it's crazy. We're just a few days away here in the middle of April. It's obviously a crazy climate in this world, but... Uh, the draft is keeping us going. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It's my favorite time of year. Yeah, it's so much fun. Hope springs eternal at this point of the season. Uh, you know, everyone's kind of wanting to see what their team is going to select and then kind of unwrap those presents, you know, see what, the, you know, kind of try to predict what they're going to be in the future. So now, this is a, a fun time for fans. I, it's one of my favorite times every every single year since I was about, you know, nine years old. I usually uh, on draft day every year tweet out the picture of me in my basement with my cardboard uh, cutouts of like draft boards that I made. And uh, ever since then, it's been, you know, something that I've followed religiously so I can I cannot wait and, and I think this is a really great way to, to kind of kick off uh, draft week certainly for us here in Packers Nation and certainly with us uh, on the Pack-A-Day podcast I cannot wait to kind of pick your brain on a lot of these different prospects but before we kind of even get into anything Packers related I just want to kind of ask you who are some of your guys in this draft I know uh, you know we we, we do all the, the tape study and try to you know gauge who we think is going to be great who we think maybe is not going to be as great and ultimately we kind of end up always falling in love with some of these players. And uh, I just want to kind of ask you, who are a few of your guys that you've kind of fallen in love with throughout this process this season? And maybe a few guys that you would bang the table for if you were in an NFL draft room. Yeah, these are always fun questions. And we develop our guys, you know, whether it's, you know, you fall in love with the kid's tape or his personality, or you kind of just develop a crush on a guy. And that just happens every draft cycle. But in order to be fair here, I'm going to tell you a couple of the guys that are my guys and a couple of the top guys that I'm not as high on as everybody else, just to kind of paint the full picture. And obviously, the my guys are good football players, so I'm not breaking any news by giving you the top players in the draft and Chase Young and Jeffrey Okuda. So I'm going to look for some more of those day two and day three guys that I would pound the table for. But in the receiver group, man, Justin Jefferson has obviously been on a meteoric rise through draft boards as LSU has been rising. But I think it's also been at the expense of guys like Devin DuVarnay out of the University of Texas, who is behind Justin Jefferson in pretty much every slot category, receptions, first downs, was a great junk ball catcher, has a track background. He ran 4.39 at the Combine. I just feel like if it wasn't such a deep receiver group, he would be getting so much more attention and maybe even day one, round one love. And I think the same thing goes for a guy like Antonio Gibson at the University of Memphis, who is that gadget kind of Debo Samuel you know, type of uh, versatile receiver that looks like a running back out in the slot. He ran 4.39 as well at six foot, nearly 230 pounds. So those are two guys that I just love their style of play. And I don't really know where they get drafted just based on the depth of the receiver group. But some other guys that I think I'm a little bit higher on than other people, you know, Kenny Willekes at Michigan State, A.J. Epinesa, they aren't the most flexible guys. They don't run around a whole lot of, you know, tackles in college. But, man, they play so hard, so violent with their hands, always playing to the whistle. And I think when you look at a lot of sacks in the NFL, so many are done with effort and intensity, not always speed and skill and running around guys. And I just love edge rushers in college that will fight you hand-to-hand combat and not always look to run around you. And one corner, just to round out my guys, when we're talking six feet, 200 pounds, running in the four fours, and broadening 10 feet, 6 inches, there's only three guys in this draft, and that's Jeffrey Akuda, C.J. Henderson, and this little old corner from the University of Tulsa, Reggie Robinson, that I think is a day-two version of Jeffrey Akuda that I've just absolutely fallen in love with. I think he makes a lot of plays in a variety of schemes, whether it's press man, off man, zone, bail, half turn. I just love that his highlights come from playing a different uh, type of techniques there. Um, but a couple of those guys there, I don't know if Andy, you had any comments on some of those guys there. 
Yeah, you definitely hit on one person that's very high up on my list, and that's AJ Epinesa. I absolutely love him. You know, I I look at him kind of as a, a Patriots player where you you know you just don't see mistakes out of him very often. And I'm not saying he's a perfect prospect by any stretch of the imagination, but I just love what he does on the football field. You look for negatives, and they don't just immediately jump out. Obviously, some of that that twitch and the athleticism that's not you know fully there. But just like you said, how he plays with his hands, his play strength. I was sh- one of the most shocking things uh, for me when the, the numbers came out of the combine was that I think he was really low on the bench press, if I remember correctly. And, uh, you know, he, he plays so strong and obviously his, his ability to use his hands and to, to get him inside and to kind of play with leverage um, stood out to me. And, and he's absolutely been somebody that I've kind of fallen in love with. Um, Devin DuVernay, like you said, you know, we take it for granted now, you know, some of these players running four, three, nine, like you said, if this wasn't a deep receiver class, or this was, you know, maybe five, six years ago, you know, if if a receiver would have ran four, three, well, the Raiders would have taken them in the top 10, you know, you know, about 10 years ago, but uh, no, I mean, seriously, you know, he's so talented and he, I don't get a a ton of time to scout in season because I'm doing all the the Packers stuff and kind of look at players in season. DuVernay was actually one that I did have a chance to look at. Um, Tony Pauline and I do a a podcast uh, draft inside podcast and I had the opportunity to, to talk about DuVernay and I wanted to do some work on him in season and uh, he completely thought you know thought the exact same thing I love him after the catch I think he's he's stronger and tougher than your usual 439 type wide receiver so um, I, I like him a lot as well so those are definitely two guys that were on my list uh, and then two other guys and maybe you can comment on these I, I talked to you a little bit about uh, Justin Metabuke um, and I'm probably butchering his name but really really like his game I was shocked because uh, Mark Eckel over at Packer report is, uh, you know, doing a, a piece where he's talking to uh, an NFL, I believe it's an executive, but don't don't quote me on that. It's someone who's had either experience in the league or is in the league. Um, and uh, they didn't have Justin Matabuke in the, the top 10 of defensive linemen, interior defensive linemen. So I was really surprised by that. I love what he brought on film and I loved his athleticism. I thought he tested well. And then another one is just Jeff Gladney and kind of on the opposite side, didn't, didn't test very well, but I just, he, he looks like a, a fish to water playing cornerback, just looks like somebody who was born to play cornerback. I love how natural it comes to him. So those are a couple guys for me, but uh, I definitely like your list quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Matabuke, I thought you nailed the pronunciation there. And a lot of that stuff's attitude. If it just rolls off the tongue and you keep going, people aren't going to question it. Um, <laughs> but he's a productive player in, in this class where it really isn't that deep in interior D-line. And I'm surprised that he didn't squeeze into somebody's top 10 there because he's a guy that I think is a good run defender and also has a lot of upside in getting after the quarterback. In mid-November, he was number three in pressures from all interior defensive linemen in the country. So a guy that can get upfield and disrupt. He had 11.5 TFLs. He got into a lot of backfields, played with our buddy Kingsley Kiki last year at Texas A&M. He reminded me a little bit, I don't know if he's as powerful, but like a Timmy Jernigan style of player. where He might be a tad undersized to play at that one-tech nose tackle position, but just really strong, stout, explosive, and disruptive. Uh, So I think he's going to be one of those darlings on day two, maybe with Neville Gallimore and Ross Blacklock and um, I'm blanking right now, Davon Hamilton, who's kind of a darling playing on the interior away from Chase Young. Uh, But a couple of guys that I'm just not as high on and everybody else, you know, Christian Fulton, who has gotten a lot of first round buzz with these other LSU kids. I'm just worried that he doesn't have a redeeming trait to kind of hang his hat on. He's not super big, not super physical, not super competitive, not doesn't have great ball skills. He's fast. He looks like the corner. He looks like the part. I just have some questions on what he's going to kind of hang his hat on at the next level. I'm kind of out on these big receivers, and there's a lot of them every year. And this year, you know, whether it's Colin Johnson or now Michael Pittman and T. Higgins and Chase Claypool are starting to be the darlings of that big receiver group. Those guys that make the 50-50 catches in college typically don't translate to the NFL. Everybody's big on the outside in the NFL. Everybody's competitive at the catch point. They just don't translate as much. So when we're talking about receivers that separate or receivers that win at the catch point, I lean a little bit more towards the separators of the group. And one guy that's gotten a lot of first-round buzz lately is Boise State left tackle Ezra Cleveland that I watched like a hawk in the summer because I had their opener against Florida State for ESPN. And I just did not see the type of player that everybody's kind of talking about right now. Uh, Obviously paved the way for a couple thousand-yard seasons from Alexander Madison at Boise. 
had a couple of uh, younger guys in the backfield now, a true freshman Hank Bachmeyer and a rotation of running backs. But I just didn't see this type of player that people are now kind of anointing to be a, uh, you know, a end of round one type of prospect. Um, and I'm also a little bit down on these kind of undersized edges the Josh Uchis, the Zach Bonds of the world that are very exciting, make a lot of plays on Saturdays. But their positional fit, are they a tweener or are they a hybrid on, the, you know, on Sundays? So I think there's a lot more questions than answers on some of those guys. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly with you on a few of those guys. I think a lot of people in Packers Nation are, are wary of, uh, of Ezra Cleveland, and I think that's going to be one that's really interesting to keep an eye on. He certainly seems like somebody that the Packers have kind of fallen in love with in the past, these um, you know super high athletic testers who show and flash a ton of potential that maybe aren't super proven quite yet. You know, Jason Spriggs, even Rashawn Gary to an extent come to mind, but uh, we'll definitely, we'll, we'll maybe touch on him a little bit later from a, a Packers standpoint. But Christian Fulton, I don't know if you, you know, thought this as well. You didn't uh, necessarily bring it right up in your in your breakdown. You were kind of more focusing on the the, the strengths or that maybe you didn't have that key trait. I, I saw a little bit of too much holding out of Christian Fulton than I, that I would have uh, liked, but I don't know if you picked up on that at all. And then just kind of going off of your your big receiver kind of theory too. I think it kind of parlays with what we saw last year, where Akeem Butler was a guy that I know a lot of people liked and was expected maybe to be a day one or day two guy. You know, he ends up going 103 overall. He was Kelvin my like kumbaya moment i loved hakeem butler i thought he checked every box that you needed and they said oh well just wait he's going to show up to indy and not run very fast well he ran four fours and they're like oh well he doesn't catch everything but he makes some incredible catches too i thought he was a day two player and the fact that he slipped to the fourth round that just was kind of a uh a kumbaya moment for me and i'm just i'm out on these big receivers if he wasn't kind of coveted by nfl minds and eyes I must not be looking at the right thing. So um, that's kind of where uh, a lot of my philo- uh, philosophical approach on that style has kind of been weaning. Yeah, Kelvin Harmon, another one who went 206. A little bit of a different uh, you know, build there, but still one of those non-separators who had to kind of win at the catch point. And again, he goes 206 overall. So uh, I think that was kind of a learning uh, lesson for me last year as well. But no, uh, if, you know, for me, uh, Marlon Davidson is the guy I can't I can't figure out. And again, maybe you uh, see something different, and I'd love to hear your take on him too. But I, I just, you know, I've heard some day one buzz. I have it, it seemed to quiet down a little bit more lately. Um, day two, I could see a little bit more, but uh, I just haven't been able to fully put together together a story for him of taking him in the top 50 picks but those are a couple of my guys yeah marlon davidson's a polarizing guy because i've seen anywhere from mid first round to the back end of the entire draft and being a sixth seventh round pick he's another guy that doesn't have a true positional fit he's played out on the edge he's played in the interior but the one thing i always see when you put on his splash plays his best of the best plays from auburn it's almost all off of stunts and twists and loops and what that tells me is they had to free him up. He couldn't win in one-on-ones. So while he has some flexibility to play up and down the defensive line, which is a trait in itself, that is an upside, he wasn't particularly productive. And I'm just afraid on kind of where that fits. He was a high-tout recruit that never really refined his game. So uh, he almost played in two different eras of college football. When you watch him as a true freshman, I mean, he's playing against Baker Mayfield, Deshaun Watson, uh, Chad Kelly at Ole Miss. He's been around for a long time at Auburn there, so uh, just never really refined his game, and I'm just kind of worried about where he's going to play at the next level. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. Uh, you did bring up Zach Bond, and I'm curious. I'm sure there's a you know a lot of Badger fans who listen to uh, the Pack a Day podcast just from you know proximity. Um, and also, I think Zach Bond is potentially a you know player that could be in play for Green Bay as well. Um, you mentioned him kind of as an undersized edge rusher, which I definitely agree with that. I think he would very much struggle with uh, bigger, more physical offensive tackles in the NFL. Uh, but there are those, of course, who feel like he is more of a off-ball linebacker um, and is going to maybe play more of an inside linebacker role for maybe a team like Green Bay. Uh, do you think he's capable of doing that, or is he just simply that tweener that is maybe going to be stuck between spots? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there in just asking the question, do I think he's capable? And that's where I'm not willing to say he is or he isn't. He really didn't do it at all at Wisconsin, literally 1%, I think, of off-ball snaps. So he did it at the Senior Bowl, which is an interesting case study. The Senior Bowl is kind of a crazy week for everybody. You could put stock into it, not put stock in it. I'm just not willing to be one of these definitive guys to say he can play off ball if you need to. How do you know? Some, some have made that transition. 
like Joe Schobert, coincidentally another Wisconsin Badger who obviously just cashed in in free agency. I'm happy for him. And then there's been Hassan Reddick's of the world, first-round pick to the Arizona Cardinals, and it's been a disaster. So there's case studies for both ways. I'm just not willing to say, oh, yeah, he can do it. Maybe he can, maybe he can't do it. I'm hoping he proves me wrong. I hope he turns into a Hall of Famer. But when you're just looking at that style of position and where you're transitioning to the NFL, what you're going to ask them to do, I have more doubts and questions than I do positives and kind of feel-goods. I hope he turns into Elvis Dumerville, who is a terror off the edge at 5'11", 245 pounds, or Robert Mathis, or Brandon Grahams of the world, who's just a shade over six feet. I could find you case studies that it works. I'm just not willing to say definitively a guy that's never done something that I'm going to say, yeah, he can do it. Maybe he can, maybe he can't. And there's guys in this draft, Josh Uchi, University of Michigan. He couldn't find time to get on the field in early downs at Michigan. So what is he going to do on Sundays in the NFL? I don't know. And there's Bryce Huff from Memphis and Cam Gill and Alex Highsmith and Mike Dana and Carter Coughlin from Minnesota. There's a lot of these undersized edges that scouts and personnel guys on Sundays are saying, what do we do with them? And then how you describe them is a lot about how you view them. If you call them a tweener, I don't really like them. If you call them a hybrid, ooh, that's exciting. And it's kind of just funny language the way guys uh, get described. Yeah, and I think with Blonde, too, you know, the thing that I always struggle with is it's one thing if you want to kind of make a, a position, you know, change with a player and if you want to, you know, kind of make that projection. But it's really difficult for me to get on board with spending a first round pick on somebody that you'd want to make a, a projection for like that. And again, like you said, not saying he can't do it. In fact, I think there's some traits there that, that show he could potentially be an off-ball linebacker, that show he could maybe have some success getting to the quarterback. But um, if you're looking at somebody that needs to change positions or that's going to have to be an undersized player at his role, uh, that's awfully rich for a, a first round value there. So um, I, and I think the other thing that's worth noting too, 23 and a third, you know, he's, he's a little over 23, a shade over 23 isn't old, you know, it's not like overaged, you know, it's not, we're not talking Brandon Whedon here, but when you're talking about a draft that's filled with 20 and 21 year old guys, uh, that extra, you know, two and a quarter year, you know, actually kind of makes a difference too, when you're sort of evaluating, uh, you know, kind of who's going to still break out. And if you're talking about a, uh, somebody who's already 23, uh, you know, over 23 years old, who has to potentially make a position change, all of that's just a, a tad rich for me, even though I really like Zach Bond as a player. Yeah, I think that's all fair there. And those are all types of questions that are being asked right now when they're putting their their board together. And when you're making a first round pick, are you asking him to maybe do some things you have some questions on? And when we're talking about age and positional fit and those types of things, there are other players that are probably safer picks uh, in the in the the eyes and the minds of some of these scouts and decision makers. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Let's move along to Green Bay for a little bit because I think this is going to be, you know, obviously where we want to spend most of our time. Um, everyone kind of has their thoughts on what Green Bay's needs actually are. And I think there's some very obvious ones. Of course, you've got, you know, some help along inside linebacker, uh, you know, maybe some help for Kenny Clark along the defensive line, a long-term offensive tackle uh, to, make, you know, potentially replace Rick Wagner maybe as soon as next season. Um, and then, of course, some playmakers on offense as well. Uh, but wh- where do you see the biggest overall needs and what direction would you really like to see them address from a need standpoint? You know, I'm really happy they address inside linebacker and free agency. I think that gives them some flexibility on draft day. Um, I'd be shocked if they double down on a position in the first round with Christian Kirksey. You know, so I don't know if they're thinking, you know, a Patrick Queen or a Kenneth Murray falling them at 30. Uh, is in the cards anymore. But when I take a step back and I kind of look at the 49ers and the Chiefs in the Super Bowl and the way they're able to win in different styles of games, they could win the defensive games, they could win the shootouts. I just think this team needs to put more points up on the scoreboard. Their only four losses last year were all the games that opponents scored 25 points and they just couldn't contend in those shootouts. So when I look at the team, And Aaron Rodgers being 36 years old, I think we just need to keep surrounding him with playmakers, ones that can take something small and make it big. And I think they need more threatening presence on offense. That's vertical stretching, horizontal stretching. And he just needs a best friend in this offense. He needs somebody reliable that's going to make the tough grabs behind him, on the sideline, down around their ankles. And then always look into the future with offensive line. That's the lifeblood of offenses. If you neglect it, your offense will be neglected. And we know depth gets tested every year 
and it often gets tested on the offensive line. And if you're not prepared to have your depth tested, you're going to look pretty dumb on Sundays uh, in midseason form. And injuries are not an excuse. You have to be prepared and have depth at those key positions. Uh, and obviously bolstering defensively, figuring out that cornerback position opposite Jair Alexander, adding more exciting interior defensive line depth is always in the cards. And I'm part of the Ron Wolf camp. I think you take a quarterback every year in the draft. Now, do you take him in round one with a 36-year-old franchise quarterback? That's the conversation I think we're about to have. <laughs> yeah, that'll be a, a good conversation to say the least. Um, and I'm right there with you. And we had uh, touched base a, a couple weeks back on, on Twitter in regards to that. And, and I do think you're you're 100% spot on that they need to have some playmakers that allow them to put up some points, some best friends for Aaron Rodgers. You know, I, I, we've reached a point with Aaron Rodgers where obviously he's still a very good quarterback, but we've seen some signs uh, of decline, at least from where he was at the peak of his powers. And, you know, for a couple of years, we had wondered, you know, well, maybe it was simply that the offense got stale or it was Mike McCarthy and, and those two were butting heads. So now they bring in a new offensive mind, a new head coach, and that, you know, hopefully solves itself there. You know, the question was, well, maybe the interior of the offensive line wasn't good enough. They go out and they get Elton Jenkins, they get a Billy Turner. Um, you know, obviously Corey Lindsley's still there. Um, you know, th there were all of these kind of question marks. Well, maybe it was his health. Well, you know, he was healthy this last season. And I think the last question that's kind of out there that maybe hasn't been fully addressed is, you know, we haven't seen Aaron Rodgers, you know, with the weapons that he had when he had the Jordy Nelsons and the James Joneses and the, the Greg Jennings and the Donald Drivers and everyone knows the names, Jermichael Finley. Um, you know, what happens if if Green Bay can get him, you know, two, you know, maybe two guys, you know, to pair along with Devin Funchess and Alan Lazard and Devontae Adams and Aaron Jones. And it's not like this is an offense that's completely devoid of talent. You know, when you start off with a Devontae Adams and an Aaron Jones, you're starting from a very, very good spot and a franchise left tackle. And then, of course, Aaron Rodgers, you know, you're in a good spot. But if you can get some of those mismatch problems uh, that, you know, those teams that you mentioned, you know, Travis Kelsey, George Kittle, you know, had with the, the Chiefs and the 49ers or, you know, Debo Samuel was, uh, you know, for the 49ers as well, Tyreek Hill. And obviously those are rare guys and they're tough to find. But if you can add some more to of those weapons to this offense, I think that's going to help answer some of those questions. And I think it could get everything going on the right track. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, I, I've been pounding the table all off season for defensive line. You mentioned that the, the, you know, those four games that they lost and they weren't able to, to hang from a points perspective in all four of those games, they got gashed in the running game. The chargers gashed them, the 49ers gashed them twice and the Eagles gashed them um, almost all with power running games. The 49ers gashed them in every running game that they wanted to use. Um, but uh, th that was a major concern for me. And more importantly is if Kenny Clark right now were to go down for any period of time, then it gets really scary in my opinion. So th those are the two for me that, that really stand out. And I'm with you too. offensive tackle long term. You can never have enough of those guys. Yeah. And I think some of the most dangerous things with Green Bay is inconsistency. And sometimes inconsistency is more dangerous to your personnel than just straight being a bad player. When we see you're a bad player, we can make the change and move forward. But when you have inconsistent play and you're seeing flashes of good and flashes of bad, that makes it really tough. And I think there's guys on both sides of the ball. And obviously, first and foremost is Kevin King. And I think, you know, 1A is like a Marquez Valdez-Scantling. And I think their up and down play from week to weeks make it really tough on the personnel department on knowing, can we trust this guy moving forward? Which is he, the good or the bad? And I think this team on some of those players, they really just need to iron out the consistency. And if you're not it, that's okay. Let's move forward. But the up and down play on a week to week basis is so tough to evaluate because then it makes it really tough to make decisions knowing who that player is. And whether it's injuries or inconsistent play on a week to week basis, not having consistency can make it really tough to kind of know what you have. Yeah, thank you. Like you said, Kevin King's kind of been the poster child for that. Uh, I would add, you know, Billy Turner and Dean Lowry into that, certainly last season as well. Um, but just players that you don't know what you're going to get from a week-to-week -week standpoint, and that can make it really hard for a coaching staff. Let's go back to your point. 
that this team needs, you know, to put up more points and need some of those mismatches and playmakers at wide receiver. Let's look at this draft. And I think you do a really unique job of kind of breaking this down. Um, you sent a, a file to me that, you know, breaks it down by slot receiver, gadget receiver, shifty receivers, you know, bigger, thicker, longer receivers, tall, lean receivers, well-rounded speed demons, hands team, etc. So you break it down in a variety of different ways. Which category of receiver do you think Green Bay most needs? And maybe a couple names that, you know, could really fill those voids. Yeah, that's great, uh, you know, to bring that up. I just feel like I need to do that for my own mental bank because while they're all receiver, there's so many different shapes and sizes and skill sets and abilities. This just kind of helps me weed through on who they are and when I'm kind of stacking the board and who is a speed guy early on and then later in the draft and just kind of helps my mental inventory of these. But what I think the Green Bay Packers need, so first and foremost, what do I think they can use at the receiver position, like I had mentioned before, threatening speed. So obviously somebody that can just run yards after catch, somebody that will take something small and turn it into something big. Like we saw Valdez Scantling take that 75 yard pass against the Raiders on a hot throw from Rodgers. They're just not enough guys that are making plays for themselves and breaking tackles and taking a little thing and making it a big thing. And I think that's what we saw Debo Samuel do so often for the 49ers this year. Second round pick, 4-4 player. They didn't throw him the ball down the field. They gave him a lot of catch and run opportunities, made it easy on Jimmy G with RPOs, screen, quick games, get it into the hands of these playmakers and make our quarterback's life easier. And I think that's the name of the game with Aaron Rodgers. How do we make his life easier? And obviously they can always use a quarterback's best friend, someone that will make the tough catches, the middle of the field catches, the contested catches, make those adjustments. So I think you can cover a lot of those boxes with these gadget uh, receivers that I've been talking about. So they look like running backs, but they play out in the slot and they can do a lot for you. And in this draft, there are a lot, a lot of players in this category. So we're talking the Henry Ruggses of the world. Obviously, you're going to go in the top 15. But Jalen Rieger and LaVishka Chenault and Lynn Bowden Jr., Devin DuVarnay, Joe Reed, Kalijah Lipscomb, Antonio Gibson. These are all guys that have lived in the slot, have also been in the backfield getting handoffs, a lot of screen opportunities, catch and run opportunities, just making offense easier for the quarterback. Get the ball out of their hands. And I just think a guy like Devin DuVarnay, which is a slot presence with great hands, with track speed. He's done some wildcat and some handoffs as well. So I think there's guys like that that I think check all the boxes for Green Bay's need at receiver. Are you pro or against, you know, potentially doubling up this position in maybe the first three, four rounds of the draft? Is this something you think they have the ability to do and add receivers to this team? Or is that overkill with what they have on their roster right now? I'm not in for doubling up. I'm in for tripling up, Andy. Yeah. I think this whole receiving core, aside from Devontae Adams, is up for competition and up for conversation. So I think in order to do that, you add competition and that makes your room and your roster better. And I don't care if you just drafted three receivers in 2018. Great. Add more receivers, youth, exciting talent, and let's see what cream rises to the top here. And I think surrounding Aaron Rodgers with as many weapons as possible, that's what you have to do. And Andy Reid wasn't content with Patrick Mahomes just having, you know, Sammy Watkins and Tyreek Hill and, you know, those guys. He said, you know what, let me trade up for Nicole Hardman out of Georgia. Never be content with the weapons around your star quarterback. Make his life as easy as possible. And I I am a serious, serious believer of this, Andy. If Aaron Rodgers never left the pocket again, I'd be perfectly okay with it. I yeah, want him I'm to be a pocket-passing assassin. I want him to be a distributor, just like Drew Brees, just like Peyton Manning, just like Tom Brady. As you get into the twilight of your career, you don't extend plays. You beat defenses with your mind. And I want him to use his experience in that gifted right arm to slice up defenses from the pocket first and foremost. Yeah, it would be a joy to see. I think, uh, what is the, the famous quotes, your your favorite Rogers highlights are from the pockets. Did you get the shirt made yet? Not yet. I'm still working on some designs and whatnot. I think I want to have a little Aaron Rodgers figure like in the breast pocket. Oh, there you go. A little play on words, Aaron Rodgers in the pocket kind of thing. But I have to keep harping on that because we've been blessed with so many plays 
out of structure, improvisational, backyard, drawing in the dirt, off his back foot. And we've been wowed with that stuff. But that's a results-based analysis. We're looking at the end of the play, not the process. We have to evaluate the process with Aaron Rodgers. And when we actually look at the process, he is very much a middle-of-the-pack quarterback. And I think having that conversation is one of the more polarizing and divisive because he's such a talented player. He's been talented. But when you analyze the process versus results, it's a deep, deep conversation. Yeah, it certainly is. And probably one that we could spend, you know, two or three shows probably discussing. Uh, but I'm right there with you. I think, you know, the easier that we can, you know, that the Packers can make things uh, for Aaron Rodgers, put more weapons around him. And, and I've said this for some time now. I don't think Green Bay is making any draft decisions based on the receivers that they have on the roster behind Devontae Adams. You know, they're not making a decision saying we can't make, uh, you know, we can't pick a second or third wide receiver because we have Marquez Valdez-Scantling or Equinemia St. Brown or Alan Lazard. They're not thinking that way. They want to get the best players possible. Like you said, add competition to that room. You know, Marquez Valdez-Scantling has had opportunities in two straight seasons under two different coaching staffs to get significant playing time. And by the end of the season, found himself on the bench because he wasn't able to play with that consistency that we talked about earlier. Uh, Equinemia St. Brown was not uh, distancing himself in training camp last year from guys like Marquez Valdez-Scantling, from Alan Lazard, from the Darius Shepherds of the world. Um, he ends up getting placed on IR and uh, obviously is going to be back this next season. Season, but I think he was a sneaky player that may not have been a lock to make the 53 at the end of last year's training camp uh, because of all those receivers that they did have, even, you know, Trevor Davis included, um, you know, at, at the time. So I don't feel like they're making, you know, draft decisions based off of those players. And I've said for a long time with the depth of receiver in this draft, I just think it makes way too much sense for them not to leave with potentially three guys uh, to, you know, add to that room, add competition, add depth, and hopefully add playmaking ability. Absolutely. I think the receiver group is too deep, too many different styles, too much upside at all levels of the draft. I think you'd easily grab some intriguing talents that could end up being contributors for you on day three and even into priority free agency. And I think you need to be honest with yourself. I would challenge anybody throw on, a, you know, a, go to a website where you look at team rosters and decide where the Green Bay Packers receiving core is heading into the draft compared to everybody else. I would be very, very shocked if it wasn't a consensus that there are a bottom five collective receiver room right now. And I think we need to be honest with ourselves in what we have collectively comparatively to the rest of the league. Yeah, I think you're 100% spot on there. Um, you know, we we talked about you breaking down the receivers into different categories. You've kind of done that with your your kind of draft board as a whole. Um, you've labeled some of your favorite sleepers, some of your past game running backs, your boom bust potential players, your all freight train team. I love some of these uh, you know these monikers that you you know put on here. But uh, I, I'll, I'm, I don't have a specific question in mind here. I just want to you know maybe walk us through some of these players that you know you've kind of uh, you know sorted in unique ways. And I think really the interesting you know group that stood out to me was your boom and bust players. Some some really big names on here, obviously Terrell Lewis, Willie Gay, Marcus Bailey, LaVisca Chenault, Antoine Winfield, Jeremy Chin. Uh, most of those are on there for, for obvious reasons, whether it be injuries, uh, lack of snaps, things like that. But uh, maybe you can walk us through some of your boom bust prospects and, and some of your other uh, sleepers and, and categories that you have on here. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a very similar to the way I broke up receivers. But at the end of the day, I literally have all my positions and my database and notes and then I just have a tab called content topics. So just finding different ways to package draft conversation and to group players together and group skill sets and abilities. And when you break it down, there's a lot of different niches and skill sets and styles to kind of group together. So, you know, whether it's breaking down all the different receivers, which I can with running backs as well. So I have my heavy bruiser backs and my freight train team. So that's really just big physical running backs, which there really aren't a whole lot in this year's draft. A.J. Dillon of the world and, you know, Patrick Taylor out of Memphis. And then all those backs that can contribute in the pass game. You know, everybody wants that third down scat back, you know, to kind of profile in the pass game, whether that's Christian McCaffrey or Kamara or Aaron Jones. And I think just kind of sorting through those abilities and having those names in your mind uh, is important just for my mental kind of Rolodex and organization. And I do that everywhere. I do that with tight ends and being traditional hand in the dirt versus flex tight ends or move tight ends. And same thing with the uh, 
you know, the edge players and guys that could slide into three tech and defensive backs are in all different shapes and sizes. So differentiating who your defensive backs are, who has nickel potential, who could maybe be a dime linebacker, who's strictly a back end player. I think just going through all those types of sortables through each position, it's just a fun way to not only educate yourself more on their abilities, but just to package draft conversation differently. And I mean, Andy, we're in the middle of April. I feel like the draft conversation is so diluted. It's so bottled down. Everybody's in it. So, you know, just finding different ways to kind of talk about these players. Uh, And I really respect people that can put out articles that aren't the same old format to talk about players. And I think just having content ideas, for lack of better words, uh, is just something I always like having in the back pocket. Um, But one of the categories I have is boom or bust. And that can mean a lot of different things. That could be somebody with a lot of injuries in college that, you know, you don't know. Maybe they never get on the field on Sunday or maybe their best football is ahead of them because of those injuries or inexperience for whatever reasons. Off the field stuff, transferring, positional fit, things like that. So I think just differentiating what those boom and bust players are and why they're boom and bust is really fun to go through. So, you know, you have the guys with the multiple injury backgrounds. And there's some players you don't realize. LaVishka Chenault has been injured the last three years. Jeremy Chin's been injured the last three years. Antoine Winfield, Trey Adams at Washington. These are guys with a lot of injuries. Marcus Bailey at Purdue, two ACL tears. So these are guys that I put on that boomer bus. Alabama edge rusher Terrell Lewis, I think, is one of the more exciting, explosive edge rushers when he's on the field. But he had an elbow injury in 17, an ACL in 18. So two major injuries have really hurt his playtime. He only has 680-something snaps to his entire college career. And then there's guys like Natan Muti, who a lot of people have as the number one guard in a very down interior offensive line class. But he's been hurt. Had an Achilles, a Liz Frank, couldn't do anything at the combine, but walked over there and put up 45-something reps on the bench press and let everybody know how strong he was. And there's just a lot of guys like that. Willie Gay Jr., he played 170 snaps this year for Mississippi State. That's it. He had some off-the-field stuff. He had a fight with a teammate, academic fraud, got ejected from a game. So there's a lot of these guys that I think are exciting prospects, but just sorting through all those kind of questions, the injuries, the inexperience, the -the off-the-field questions, and they all get grouped into my boomer bust category. Within that group, um, you know, whether it be a, a Jeremy Chin or a, a you know Antoine Winfield, whoever whomever it may be, is there a player on that list that you're willing to to kind of pound the table for a little bit more that you think has the ability to maybe overcome some of those deficiencies and, and some of that bust potential? Yeah, that's a really good question, you know, and I think Terrell Lewis, when he's on the field and particularly this past year, he has a really unique combination of being physical, powerful in the upper half and loose and flexible with his lower half. When he's on the field, he is a top 15 player. And I think he's kind of through the weeds uh, with his injury. So I'm really excited for him. The other guy is Willie Gay Jr., who showed up to the combine and turned heads running 4-4 at the linebacker position. And I've heard he's actually absolutely blown away the interviews uh, leading up to the draft here. And my buddy Daniel Jeremiah on NFL Network had mentioned to me that Teams are really impressed with him as a personality. And I think when you you have a guy like Willie Gay with all those off-the-field questions, hearing that he's killing the interviews or crushing the interviews or whatever millennial word for good, (laughs) uh, the interviews, that's a really big thing for Willie Gay. And that could potentially squeeze him into the high second round. Uh, So there's guys like that. Marcus Bailey looks great on the field, just the two ACL tears. And his agent just put him working out last month and he looks to be fully healthy so you know Terrell Lewis Willie Gay Marcus Bailey in particular I think they're kind of through the weeds and all the junk in their college career and their best football might be ahead of them another you know group and list that you have on here are your favorite sleepers and I'm assuming these are going to be you know late day three guys maybe even priority free agents you always find uh, guys I remember what Malik Reed uh, was it last year it was one that uh, you had found and I uh, really had a, a nice season for Denver as an undrafted free agent yeah where is he um, from uh, Nevada the edge rusher yes yep uh who are some of maybe your favorite sleepers from this year's draft 
So the sleeper category, especially this year, I'm trying to give a lot of attention to. The pro days are really killing their buzz for those unsung guys, the FCS guys, the D2, the D3, the NAIA, the Canada. There is so much football played. It is mind-blowing. And I legitimately believe this. There is no such thing as a Division I sleeper. There's too much football being played for anybody at a Division I school to be a sleeper. Can it happen? Yeah, it's pretty rare. You have to be Matt Castle as a backup your whole career, or maybe you're an FCS transfer that didn't win a job, so then all of a sudden you you know became a nobody. But the guys in my group here are all interesting because they all have stories. And typically there's some journey you've been on. So, you know, running back Trey Minter out of South Alabama, and you're thinking, oh, South Alabama. Well, he led the state of Georgia in rushing coming out of high school but was academically ineligible. And Georgia plays some big-time high school football. They're a who's who of high school football. When you put on his tape at South Alabama, he's sudden, he's shifty, he's explosive, he catches the ball well, he kick returns. It just had the issue coming out of high school. So he's a guy that has all the upside and the ability, just had some issues in being recruited. And you look at a corner from Troy, Will Sunderland. Well, he was a four-star Oklahoma transfer. He's 6'2", 195. 6'2", 195. That's tall. That's long. And he ran 4.46 at his pro day. Watch him battle Arkansas State Omar Bayless. They played Missouri this year. Another guy like that with tons of upside. And the last guy to round this out, there's a guy in my gadget, my gadget receiver category, Kirk Merritt, also from Arkansas State. And you're like, ah, oh, Arkansas State. Well, he was high school teammates with Justin Jefferson. They won the state championship. He was the state runner-up in the 100 meter, the 200 meter. Exciting high school player. He goes to Oregon, transfers to Texas A&M, has a bit of an incident there with a tutor, has to go to JUCO, and now he's at Arkansas State. All of a sudden puts up a thousand yards. He's a kick returner. He lines up in the backfield. But that type of pedigree from high school, the track background, you go to the University of Oregon, then to the SEC at Texas A&M, you have some ability. You have some upside. Now you just need to weed through what the issues were off the field. But it seems like he's kind of through all that. So there's guys like this every year. And it's just fun to kind of dig into the guys not getting a lot of attention because they all have stories. And there's so much football played in this country. And it's just fun to kind of dig into them and give some guys some some love and some buzz that, you know, maybe the the national media isn't aware of. And, and to be fair, who hasn't had an incident with a tutor? I mean, I think uh, all of us on our best days can say, you know, we've had something like that happen. So, you know, who knows? You know, all of these guys are going to be really interesting names and uh, just fun stories to keep an eye on. And hopefully they can find uh, a spot in the draft. And if not, you know, as a priority free agents and maybe get some signing bonus money and kind of, you know, make things happen from there. I'm I'm disappointed, as, as I'm sure a lot of uh, players are and a lot of teams are that, you know, there, there's not going to be the ability to have these immediate rookie mini camps this season. Um, some of those guys get their, their tryout options, you know, Darius Shepard for Green Bay uh, a yep. season ago, didn't even get an immediate priority free agent, had to go the tryout route. Um, and then from there, you know, got signed onto the team and made it on the 53-man roster um, and is still on the roster today. So, you know, it, it's disappointing that some of those guys won't get that immediate opportunity, but hopefully that happens down the line. Um, and real quick, just, uh, yeah. you know, and also digging into these sleepers, I'm obviously in a very advantageous position with some of my jobs and having access to some of this very obscure tape, which some of it is SD and sketchy and looks like this Bruder film. And they have some poor freshman GA shooting the, the game and they're shooting the parking lot and falling asleep. And it's fun to kind of watch all the different film as well. But having access to that film through my jobs at NFL Films and the Eagles is obviously a huge benefit to be able to watch uh, some of these kind of unsung guys and the uh, lesser known schools. Yeah, for sure. But it's uh, it's it's great insight, and we appreciate that you're able to share it with us. You know, we we teased this topic a little bit, you know, earlier. Uh, I think there's certainly a couple names out there that, you know, if I'm reading the the Packers fan sphere accurately, it seems like there's some trepidation uh, that maybe the Packers would take them. And uh, it, I kind of get the feeling that a lot of people are not on board. Uh, we've kind of touched base on both of them already. Uh, Jordan Love and Ezra Cleveland seem to be the the two that uh, fans maybe have the most angst about. Um, you kind of touched on it earlier. Ezra Cleveland, you know, it feels like maybe somebody that uh, is not that first 
first round type of guy. But what are your takes uh, on both of these players, both Jordan Love and Ezra Cleveland, if Green Bay would decide to take them at 30, maybe trading down, maybe picking them up, uh, you know, early second round, or maybe if they would somehow fall maybe later in the second round? What, what are your takes on these two players potentially ending up in Green Bay? So I really like Jordan Love. I think he's he's a high upside player. He's a really exciting athletic talent with a live arm and good size. And I would challenge anyone to put on his 2018 tape against Michigan State, one of the more impressive tapes of any quarterback prospect I've ever seen. His ability to layer throws in the deep and intermediate part of the field is something you just don't see on Saturdays very often. Had a lot of lesser talent around him, a lot of drops. But... I just don't know if 36-year-old, you know, Aaron Rodgers is in the position or this team is in the position to kind of look to the next stage already. And when you look back and everybody says, oh, well, when they took Aaron Rodgers, he Favre was younger than what Aaron Rodgers is now. And you also have to remember that season, they went 4-12 and and Mike Shermer got fired. And it was one of the, I think, the first time they finished last in the division in like 25 years. So, you know, taking a quarterback in the first round also hurts your ability to be kind of competitive that year and lets you know what they kind of think of the team moving forward and if they're contenders or not. So taking a quarterback at the expense of improving your team for 2020 and adding weapons or offensive line or defense or something to contribute to a contending team, I think is just a really tough philosophical approach. Um, and it's going to be interesting if a quarterback like that falls to them at 30 and you have to make that decision. But it's going to be a huge decision at the expense of the presence and the present in 2020. So um, I like Jordan Love. I just don't think the Packers are ready to turn that page into quarterback. And just to remind everybody, I said a couple of minutes ago, I'm part of the Ron Wolf camp. You take a quarterback every year because you never know. But. That's more of a day three thing, a priority free agent thing, always churning the back of your quarterback room. And I know we don't have as much practice time to develop. And, you know, that really is kind of a, uh, a lost art is the quarterback development because we don't have as much time with them. But just moving over to Ezra Cleveland. So I watched a lot of his tape over the summer, and I thought I saw more of a John Theus type of player who is the left tackle at Georgia for Todd Gurley, Nick Chubb, Sony Michelle but was obviously never really a coveted NFL prospect. He was a little undersized, a little bit weak with his play strength. And some things immediately that I see from Ezra Cleveland is that play strength. I see a timid play personality, doesn't always play to the whistle, likes to look back, which I hate from offensive linemen. When I say look back, they're looking to see if the play is over rather than trying to get in that last shot or maybe be edgy or physical um, which I like out of my offensive linemen just to kind of play to the whistle and have that imposing physical presence. But when you put on his tape, it's a lot like Andre Dillard. You watch three, four games. You're not impressed. He doesn't wow you. But you suddenly realize nobody sniffed the quarterback. He hasn't been on the ground in literally three straight games and has always done his job, but doesn't do anything overwhelming to really impress you. Um but those concerns that I have about his personality, the play strength, finishing, those are huge, huge red flags, in my opinion, for an offensive tackle. I think he's a nice player, but more of a round three or four tackle, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think I think you're right there. And I think, you know, a lot of fans would probably not be happy with either, you know, two picks. I think they both bring a lot to the table. You know, speaking of Jordan Love, you know, you mentioned that 2018 Michigan State game. I also think that 2019 Fresno State game was another one where he had a really strong performance. I think for if, if anyone's going out and maybe watching two or three games of a prospect, if you picked the right two games or the wrong two games of Jordan Love, you may have vastly different experiences of who you think Jordan Love is as a quarterback because because some of that MSU tape, that Fresno State tape is just so ridiculously good and making NFL throw after NFL throw. And you're, you just immediately fall in love with the guy. And then you throw on 2019 BYU where he's, you know, not seeing defenders drop underneath and intercepted multiple times and making some of the same mistakes that he's made in other games. And he makes you want to pull kind of your hair out a little bit. So uh, there, you definitely have to reconcile, you know, both of those uh, you know, traits. I know some people have said, uh, you know, it's just because he didn't have the talent and he was kind of going full gunslinger trying to bring his team, uh, you know, up a notch with his play. And maybe that's certainly some of the case. 
I'm not saying it's an apples to apples comparison from a, a talent or, or a player standpoint or what he's ultimately going to be like. Um, but Jake Locker is a player that, you know, comes to mind a little bit with Jordan Love because some of the same things were said about Locker because he had poor completion percentage in college, but you could just see the ridiculous raw talent that was there, you know, massive arm strength, agility, um, and just, a you know, ability to make NFL style throws. Um, and, and some of the thought process, if I remember correctly with Locker at the time was, you know, the reason that his completion percentage wasn't as high was because they was they were more of a downfield throwing and passing attack, um, attacking kind of the, the second and third levels of the field. And he didn't get some of those easy completions. And then he gets to the NFL and, and really some of the same issues that were issues in college persisted in the NFL. So I really like Jordan Love, but it's a tough eval. And I think that's why there's so much, uh, you know, there's so much uh, polarizing talk about Jordan Love. But man, some of that tape is really, really good too. <laughs> yeah, I have two names written down in my comparison. Actually, I haven't read my notes on him in a while. I'm seeing 2019, bad completion percentage, too many interceptions, 17 touchdowns, 16 picks. I have two names written down in my comparison. I'm not sure where or when I wrote this, but I have Ryan Tannehill, who was an athletic, you know, uh, sure. former receiver out of Texas A&M. And the other one I have is Brett Hundley. And I would challenge people to go back and read the notes on Brett Hundley coming out of UCLA, because there's a lot of similar things that people are saying about Jordan Love, too. The athleticism, the big body, the strong arm, the ability to be mobile when he needs to. Uh, so, you know, it's always funny to kind of look back and see what these quarterbacks were, what they were said about coming out of college. And now we kind of are already kind of confident on what they are after seeing them in the NFL. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's why some of that trepidation is there with Packer fans. That That's kind of the, you know, maybe the the downside or, or maybe the the concern that some people have at 30. But let's talk about our ideal picks at 30. Well, Who real quick, some, also yeah. just to spin that to Ezra. And like you're saying, depending on what game of Jordan you're watching, Jordan Love, you might have completely different opinions. And the same thing with Ezra Cleveland. And another red flag that I have is he never played well against the best competition. So when you want to watch, he played in Boise, great. That's a Mountain West. So I want to watch, you know, when he plays Florida State, he plays Washington, he played Oklahoma State last year. Those are his three worst games of his career, and those are the three best teams. So that's also a huge red flag that you're not playing your best ball against the best competition. I don't want you just picking on the lesser competition out in the Mountain West. So just like Jordan Love, what tape you put on with Ezra Cleveland will probably mold your opinion on the player. Yeah, very much so, which can often be the case of too many players, but certainly the case with Ezra and Jordan Love. Um, so as I was mentioning, let's take a look at some of maybe our ideal picks at pick 30, or at least maybe their their first pick in the draft, somebody that you think would be a instant fit uh, within either the offense or the defense, and that could come in and help this team win immediately. Yeah, so, you know, I think uh, these kind of gadget receivers, there's going to be some options there at 30 to consider. And then it's the whole cat and mouse on whether you think there's more value there on day two, which there's a lot more comparable value at the receiver position. So, you know, at 30, they're going to be considering, you know, Jalen Riegers of the world and m maybe Brandon Ayuk. There's, I'm hearing buzz, Antonio Gibson and his 439 running back body and slot receiver role could squeeze into round one. But you can wait on some of those guys and maybe get a Lynn Bowden Jr. or a Joe Reed from Virginia, you know, on day two. LaVishka Chenault seems like he's going to slide. So it's just kind of weighing what other talent is available. If a Denzel Mims potentially slides, who we really haven't talked about. He's a receiver with a little more size. The track background, the 4-3 speed, has some issues with drops, but also has some impressive catch point stuff. So uh, he's a guy that I think is going to be right there considering the bump up of, you know, Justin Jefferson and those guys. It seems like Denzel Mims is going to slide just a little bit. Maybe T. Higgins is there at 30 to consider as well. I uh, already spoke about some of my issues with those catch point guys, the build up speed guys. Um, but it's really weighing the comparable talent on day one and day two. So I think there's more comparable talent at receiver on day two. So does that mean they maybe go with an offensive tackle position? with that first pick at 30 that I think there's a big drop off. You have a little bit more developmental projects on day two. I really like Lucas Niang and Ben Barch and, you know, Matt Pert at a Yukon, but I don't know if any of those guys are ready to play day one. So if the Packers really want a 
contending competition at right tackle with Rick Wagner, which let's just face it, Rick Wagner's a veteran stopgap. He can hold it down. He's what we call a hired gun, which he could come in and play right away. But you're always looking to improve that position. You can upgrade the talent. So if they really want to add a legitimate contender for the right tackle position, they might have to address that in round one. So that's maybe Austin Jackson at the University of Southern Cal or maybe uh, Josh Jones at the University of Houston, who has kind of slid a little bit considering the, the buzz of some of the other tackles. So I think offensive tackle is going to be a huge play for the Packers in round one, and they might have to slide up to maybe that 18 to 23 range to get the player they want. Yeah, and, it, and certainly Brian Gutekunst hasn't been somebody that's been shy about moving around in the first round of the draft. He's only had two, uh, you know, two years doing this, and he's moved up or down three times, uh, and just in the first round alone in the past two seasons. So uh, we saw him move up from uh, 30 last year with, you know, to go get Darnell Savage. It would not surprise me in the slightest, especially knowing how much Green Bay likes to attack premium positions in the draft. That if you know all of a sudden Josh Jones or Austin Jackson, one of those guys, were kind of one of the last offensive tackles left on the board, would not surprise me in any way shape or form uh, one of the top tackles left on the board I should say uh, to see him go up and, and get one of those type of players so I'm right with you I think Josh Jones makes a ton of sense you know obviously in, a, in an ideal situation you know Justin Jefferson falling would be a, a dream come true I just absolutely think he's going to be fantastic and would fit amazing in Green Bay's offense yeah. don't necessarily see that happening um, and then just going back to a guy that I talked about earlier I know he's not a perfect fit within Green Bay's defense necessarily but uh, give me AJ Epinesa if he would fall that far yeah. I, I, I just think he's he's too talented to pass up if he would get to 30. He just doesn't look good, you know, and he's built like a refrigerator, but that's okay. You need a couple of those players too. You know, he doesn't have that angular frame. He's not turning the corner with speed rushes. He's a guy that's going to play right through you and fight you in, at the spot, and I love those types of players. But not to fully cop out here. He said, who are my picks? So I would love to go, if we could snag a Josh Jones in round one, Go get me one of these gadgets on day two, like a Devin DuVernay, Lynn Bowden, Antonio Gibson, Joe Reed. Grab two of them for all I care. And then on day three, go get me one of these speed demons. I love John Hightower at Boise State. Darnell Mooney at Tulane ran 4-3-8 at the Combine. There's guys like that. Quez Watkins is a 4-3 guy. So adding, I think, a tackle, a gadget receiver, and somebody that just wakes up every morning being fast and threatening on the field – that is kind of the dream package for me. Obviously, adding in some some uh, interior defensive tackle depth, maybe a more traditional wide tight end, uh, maybe look past Mercedes Lewis in the future, and always adding corners and safeties into the competition in that room. And uh, you know whether it's Kevin King or Kadar Holman, and figure out what you have with Josh Jackson. I think always turning the bottom of the roster at those positions are important, and that's really day three in the draft. Yeah, I couldn't have said any better. I, same thing, Josh Jones. Give me uh, receiving, you know, one of those weapons in round two, and then round three, maybe, you know, I hope maybe that uh, NFL insider was right, and maybe uh, Justin Metabuike is falling a little bit, and maybe Green Bay can, in a dream scenario, pick him up in round three somehow, which would be beyond insane. But uh, I'll say that as my dream scenario. So those are what we would love to see happen. What do you think happens in the draft? What direction do you think Green Bay will go in? Ooh, that's like a psychological quandary there. All right, so <laughs> put my – I think they're going to end up taking a receiver at 30. Um, it seems like they really like Denzel Mims. Uh, you know, I don't know if he's going to be there or not. Some of these gadget guys, I'm not sure if they're worth at 30. You know, there's so much more value on day two. I think that spot, like we see every year from 25 to 32, is a big area for movement. So it's not always the teams that want to move back, but there's some other teams that want to go get a guy at the end of round one, whether that's Lamar Jackson uh, to Baltimore or whoever it is. Packers have traded out of that back end of round one a number of times. So if you could maybe get out of 30 and stockpile a couple more day two picks, I think there's a lot of intriguing value on day two. So a trade out, I also would not uh, rule out with Gutekunst. 
Yeah, I think trading down, look for a team maybe like the Texans at 40, who maybe would want to get up as, as maybe a team to move down with. I would seem to make some sense there. Uh, but I, I'm going to go, and maybe I'm just emotionally hedging my bets here. Um, I'm going to say that they're going to take Ezra Cleveland at 30. Um, again, not saying they should, uh, but just looking at some of the players that they've attacked in the past, they love that high upside, that athleticism, um, you know, scored really well in, in all of the, the tests at the combine. Just seems like something that they would do. And then, you know, you talk about receivers that they've attacked. Well, you, you know, looking at Brian Gutekunst in the past, you look at Marquez Valdez-Scantling, Alan Lazard, uh, Equinemius St. Brown, you know, every, you know, even Jamon Moore was 6'4". All these guys are 6'4", 6'5", 6'6", you know, big physical receivers who also have some speed. Um, again, not saying that this is my ideal choice, but I'm going to say that they maybe take a flyer on somebody like a Donovan Peoples-Jones, who's Ooh, that taller yeah. receiver, massive athleticism. Um, it hasn't really peaked as of yet. Didn't have great quarterback play at Michigan, uh, but, you know, has that, that up side and I those just seem to me trying to read tea leaves like Green Bay Packer Brian Gutekunst pick so not saying that's what I'd like them to do but uh I could see that them all going seems pretty fair though right there I think that seems fair so a buddy of mine who I have tremendous tremendous amount of respect for is deep into the scouting community we had him do uh the Packers pick in a mock draft a couple days ago you'd be sh- I was shocked at who he picked for the Packers at 30 Cesar Ruiz who's a really intriguing player at the University of Michigan, one of the better centers, interior offensive linemen. But could you imagine the Packers taking an interior offensive lineman, walking out of the first round, still having receiver and tackle needs? And I just feel like taking the quarterback there is a similar type of bad taste in your mouth that you leave the first round and you still have all your needs on the board. I will say this about Ruiz and, and matching him up to Brian Gutekunst, not necessarily, you know, saying that this would be a good move or whatever, but, uh, you know, under 21 years of age, which they seem to love kind of those, those younger, more upside players, um, you know, obviously fits their athleticism. Um, didn't actually, I shouldn't say that he, he had a poor three cone, which is usually something that they look at pretty highly, which is another reason Austin Jackson, um, could potentially maybe not be their, their choice there. They seemingly love people uh, with that, that show that high agility, but, um, you know, younger uh, tested well, athletic with everything else. Um, if they think, I guess a couple things with Corey Lindsley, for some reason, if they want to save that almost 10 million right now and just immediately plug in Ruiz at center, um, that would certainly be some cost savings they could do. Um, even if they wanted to wait um, and then not have to pay him next season could be something. I, I would think that would have to be that Ruiz could push immediately for time at, at right guard now um, and, and maybe make uh, Billy Turner into more of like a, a swing tackle, um, somebody that's going to focus on that off the bench uh, specifically or, or really a backup at probably every position besides center um, and then maybe move Ruiz into right guard. I don't love it. Um, I don't, I don't see them going in that direction. I don't think they would value interior offensive line quite that highly. Although, you know, um, uh, Elton Jenkins wasn't that much, what pick 42 ish a season ago. So I I don't see it, but crazier things have happened. I'll put it that way. I'm ready for anything at this point in the draft. I have no surprises. Like literally I'm, I'm desensitized to surprises now. So anything that happens, I'm not emotional about, I kind of expect the worst, prepare for the best and the whole deal. Yeah, I think that's the right way to go about it. Like I said, emotionally hedging a little bit. If they, at least if they pick Ezra Cleveland, well, hey, uh, at least I, you know, uh, predicted it accurately at that point. I guess I'll take <laughs> I'll take some solace in that. Uh, any final thoughts? Any other players that you would like to discuss, Ben, uh, before we get out of here? No, not particularly. You know, it was a nice little kind of uh, roll of decks of all different guys there. I'm glad we were able to touch on some sleepers and some boom or bust guys. I love those types of conversations. Um, no, this is the draft. I just, I, I absolutely just love the draft and the conversation all around it. I love, you know, obviously the combine from now because it's just completely dominated with prospect talk. And, um, you know, it's just not getting too high or too low about the buzz and the news and teams meeting with players and mock drafts. And, you know, it's really just kind of absorbing the information and just having fun with it as, as a fan and an analyst of the draft. You know, you're not making the picks. Kind of sit back and relax, educate yourself on the players, what they do well, what they don't do well. There's no perfect prospects. So I think as analysts, what me and you do, you know, just painting a full fair picture for the fans, not being emotional and dramatic about it, I think is the name of the game. And, you know, I love talking with people like you that do the work and are educated and we can have just natural good conversations like this. Uh, You know, this is really what I love to do. And, you know, uh, the draft is easily my favorite event of the year. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. And it's always a ton of fun to have you on and have those conversations. Uh, just like you said, it's it's not to pick apart, you know, players like, and you say this all the time. I would love every single one of these players to go out and have Hall of Fame NFL careers. Um, we, you know, we kind of pick our favorites. We pick some guys that we think, you know, maybe won't be as good, but I hope they all turn out to be amazing NFL professionals. And, and that'd be, that'd be fantastic. So right, exactly. I'm not rooting for anybody to fail. I, if I don't like someone, I hope they prove me wrong. And I think, you know, there's some guys that people know I'm not fans of and stuff. I hope they prove me wrong. But it's just trying to paint the full, fair picture of these prospects and that we really have no uh, no value in their success or their failure. So, you know, I have no stake in their career and I'm wishing everybody the best. But as being an analyst, it's just trying to paint an accurate picture for the fans. Yeah, which I think you do a tremendous job of, and we appreciate you coming on today. Uh, ben, where can we follow you on Twitter and anything else you'd like to plug on the way out? Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Fennell underscore NFL, F-E-N-N-E-L-L. Um, going to be working in combination with this uh, NFL Network ESPN joint draft broadcast uh, coming up in a couple days. It's kind of a weird fluid animal, a lot of moving parts and changes. It's a weird year. Um, but before you know it, you know, training camp's going to be around here. I'll be back with the Philadelphia Eagles and doing some film breakdowns with the Packers and hopefully back on the road at the ESPN College Football. But at the very least, I have some free time this summer, so don't be shy about reaching out or if anybody wants to hang out and watch tape or hit the links or uh, talk about 2020, 2021 guys, which this quarantine has allowed me to get way ahead on my 2021 uh, database and notes. So always looking ahead to the draft and it's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, if, if, if everything else, you know, doesn't get back to normal, uh, the 2021 draft is probably going to be something I jump in uh, right away as well, just because, you know, what the heck else are we going to do, I guess. But exactly. I bet... Ben, you are amazing for coming on. That that does it for us today. Uh, make sure to listen in all week as we get you all set for this week's draft. Ben, enjoy draft week. It's the, it's the best time of the year. Uh, for everyone listening, again, make sure to go out and follow Ben at Ben Fennel underscore NFL. Uh, the next time we talk, uh, we'll be evaluating Packers selections and undrafted free agents. So cannot wait, wait for that. Uh, should be a very fun and enjoyable week. Enjoy it, everyone. And until next time, and as always, go Pack Go.